Dave, just before we uh, uh, started up the show, I was looking at the news. Did you know, this is interesting, did you know that the CEO of IKEA got elected as the Prime Minister of Sweden? Is that, wait, whoa, hold on, what, is that true? Or are you, are you yeah, BSing yeah. me? I, this, this actually happened a few, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Poor guy's still trying to assemble his cabinet. Oh, I'm angry. I'm angry at you. Oh, I fell for that hook, line, and sinker. Oh, speaking of which, speaking oh. of which, you're building something underneath the stairs right now. Is that not true? <laughs> I love how quickly you transition away from that joke. Speaking of getting us off that joke, um, yes, Brad, I'm building an entirely new uh, podcasting studio underneath my stairs in my Harry yeah. Potter closet. And as has been the case with the pandemic, I could do a simple version of it, but I'm running electrical and I'm building <laughs> tables and I'm cutting wood and sawing things. And I'm going to build a proper little soundstage underneath our stair. Nice. And that's going to that's really I'm kind of looking forward to that because now on the show, we'll be doing the show and then it'll be up. Oh, Gloria's going upstairs. Hold on. Now Gloria's coming downstairs. <laughs> Are you going to have like a chain in front of the stairs so nobody walks on the stairs? Well, you know, it's funny. That, so that this was everybody's response in the family. This is how yeah. dumb I am. Uh, they're like, well, what about when people go up and down the stairs? And I go, oh, don't worry about it. You guys are all in school when I record the podcast with Brad. And they go, yeah. we're out of school for three months a year. <laughs> so I got to tell everybody for the podcast, there's going to be three months with just a... <laughs> In the background, I got. I was talking about this at the dinner table, and we were talking about your podcast uh, uh, area. And <laughs> I go, I'm kind of concerned that we're going to hear people walking up the stairs. And uh, Alex, my son, goes, uh, "Have you said anything?" And I said, "No, I'll, I'll I'll talk about it later. I guess if we start hearing noises." And he goes, "Oh, you're just like the smoke detector that goes off after the house burned down." <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, I'm going to say hello, everybody. And welcome to Comic Lab, one of the last clearly recorded shows before I moved to the new podcast space, the show about making comics. And making a living from comics. Oh, there goes my dog. There goes my 14-pound dog. And I'm Brad Geiger, the editor of webcomics.com and the creator of Evil Inc., and I'm his friend, Dave Kellett, who half thinks through ideas, cartoonist of Drive and Sheldon and co-director of Stripped. And this week's hour of comics advice is made possible by your support at patreon.com slash comic lab. So Dave, Dave, let's talk comics. Let's talk comics, my friend. And a reminder that this show is going out live right now to our Comic Lab Live Gab pals. And that's over at patreon.com slash comic lab. You can join us at the $10 level and get yeah. the live visually streaming show, not just audio, but visually streaming show every week uh, at the same time. And if you happen to miss the installment, you can check out the archives which are saved week to week, and you can jump in and watch Brad's visuals. For example, Brad is wearing a cardigan <laughs> sweater today that I can only say is Mr. Rogers-esque oh. uh, in terms of just the sex appeal of a, of a middle-aged man in a cardigan. I think, <laughs> form an orderly line, everybody. Gentlemen, ladies, let's let's make this orderly. I'm good. Yeah, listen, I look great in this. I'm telling you, this is a good look for me. I, I, it's getting harder and harder to find good looks, and this I will is one say of it's, them. It's it's professorial. I will give you yeah. that. It's, it's It's got a clean line. It hangs yeah. off the shoulder well. Listen to me. 
you uh, you look great, Brad. You look yeah. You look all I need is little elbow patches. Remember the college professors that always had elbow patches on their tweed jackets? That is a great idea. If you never want to have sex again in your life, that's great. Yes, let's go with the the leather elbow patches. Yes, I can, I think you can seal that deal. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, while I'm sealing deals with my cardigan, I want to talk about a deal that you definitely want to keep on your calendar, and that is the Comic Craft January 1st New Year's Day sale at comicbookfonts.com. It is absolutely one of the things that Brad and I look forward to every year. I yeah. say this without hesitation. Every year I drop so much delighted <laughs> cash on, at Comic Craft at their their New Year's sale because yeah. they literally make the best fonts uh, in, the, in the world of comics. Uh, mm-hmm. And I have slowly but surely built up an amazing collection of Comic Craft fonts. Ones yeah. that I love. I love Comic Crazy, that, their font Comic Crazy. I love yes. Monologous, uh, Pulp Fiction, Rasm Frasm, Says You, Spills. Is is yeah. one of the best 1950s diner sign fonts I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, cheese and crackers, Brad. What are some of your favorite comic craft oh, fonts? I've got a lot, and because all of, each of these fonts are going to be priced based on the new year. In other words, each of them are going to be twenty dollars and twenty two cents, which is kind of amazing because some of them are quite a bit more expensive than that the rest of the year long. This is the time to stock up. I'll tell you what's on my list. Uh, it, Always, I'm going to suggest Ratatat Tat. This is oh, an yeah. all you do. Purpose. You love that one. You uh, love Ratatat Tat. I love. I use it at least once or twice a week for sound effects. Uh, why? Because it's clear, it's crisp, it's it's bold, it's beautiful. This is a great font for uh, making sound effects, particularly. Here's another one that I use I, I, again at least three times a week. It's called Zoinks. Do you use Zoinks? No, but you know what's funny? This oh. is how you know you've been in the game. I see you using Zoinks and I go, all right, Brad, I see you. I got, <laughs> I know what you're doing. Oh, I, you, I, I, Zoinks is another good one for sound effects because it's got such a great shape. The, the sound looks funny when you use zoinks it's just it looks funnier than the, than i wrote the it the energy yeah well that's the yeah. thing so so this all of comic craft's fonts are by the way are designed by professionals that are in the comics trade and so these are not fonts that like, oh, it might be useful to comics. They specifically have body fonts that are perfect for uh, monologuing. They have yeah. sound effects fonts. They have uh, body fonts that are great. Uh, and so the, the entire lineup all, and at twenty dollars and twenty two cents this year. Yes. That is fantastic. These are probably these yeah. are fonts that sometimes go for one hundred and fifty, two hundred. $400 uh, and all drop down to 2022. So head on over to Comic Craft on New Year's Day. And you can check that out at comicbookfonts.com. May you get on your calendar. And Bradley, what is our first topic for today, my friend? Oh, we've got a great topic for today. This one comes in from Katie McMahon, who says, hey, Dave and Brad, I'd love some advice on editing comic pages. I'm fairly confident with editing on the writing side of making comics, but I don't have a good framework for how to edit on the art side. If you have any resources you'd recommend looking into, I'd appreciate it. So we're going to talk about, I I guess, maybe the better word for this is art direction, art editing. How Mm -hmm. would you suggest somebody edit the art in a comics project? Okay, well, this is a great question, and I don't know that we've ever really talked about this in depth before, so uh, let's let's jump in on it. I think there's a couple things to establish that you can do on any given panel to help emphasize and work with and play off of the writing that you're presenting in that panel, right? 
So uh, number one uh, is camera choice, camera angle. Uh, do you have a tight shot from shot from below, which makes it look like a, a socialist realist hero shot, you know, like Superman, you know, broad chest looking upward kind of a thing. Yeah. Uh, do you have bird's eye view looking down, sort of indicating that uh, this in this moment, this person feels alone on even even among a busy street there. It's a God's eye view of 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 an individual, uh, you know, alone. Do you have an, an up close tight shot, you know, all, sort of all the 22 panels that work from Wally Wood. Uh, uh, the, all of those can help emphasize and help select the mood that you're trying to present in the uh, the panel. Uh, second one I think is lighting. Um, this one goes unsaid a lot, but mm -hmm. I often light for uh, room medium, you know, sort of like uh, I, I tend to let my writing do the heavy lifting. But there are cartoonists like I don't know, I'm thinking like Paul Pope that, mm -hmm. that use lighting to great effect in terms of going dark um, and and uh, and emphasizing with light. Uh, the other one, the final one that I would say is the editing of uh, materials, backgrounds and items that you have in frame. Um, a classic idea is the idea of, you know, Chekhov's gun. You don't want to have more stuff than needed. You don't want to, yeah. we, we work and live in a reductive art. So you want to, mm -hmm. you want to winnow down uh, to what is the bare essence to enough to set the mood enough to help reinforce what the, what the point of that scene is or the point of that dialogue is, but not to distract so that people are like, wait, I, I see why Batman is mad at the flash, but yeah. why is there a porpoise on a rock in the background? Like, why did, why did they choose to, does the porpoise mean something? I don't know what the porpoise is all about. Right. Was that a mistake or did they do it on porpoise is what the, what you're trying to ask. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. I walked right into that. Um, uh, so those are my three like off the cuff uh, thoughts, Brad, on how to edit for art. Um, such that your art and your writing are working hand in glove. Uh, what are your thoughts, Brad? Uh, you're, uh, you seem to be fired up over there, so I, I want to know. Yeah, what I you... am a little bit. This is. I'm finding out I have more and more Niagara Falls uh, topics that, <laughs> that that come up. Those topics. Can, wait, can I pause you for a second yeah. for our international friends? Can you explain what Niagara <laughs> Falls is? Because we use that reference a lot, and I don't there know that everyone great, knows that. There was a great vaudeville routine that the Three Stooges made famous where basically somebody comes up and says uh, a, a phrase that sets off this other person into a furious, uh, uh, violent fit of punches and kicks. Uh, and that phrase is Niagara Falls. And whenever somebody says Niagara Falls, this huge, usually it's a huge actor, right? A huge guy uh, bellows, slowly I turn, step by step inch by inch and then pummels the person mercilessly until the next time they say Niagara Falls and the guy says Niagara Falls slowly I turned so this is another one of my <laughs> Niagara Falls topics <laughs> and I'm going to tell you why just because I, I need to preface this because if I just give you my advice it's going to sound really mean so I'm going to give you where this is coming from and then I'm going to give you my thoughts okay okay I spent 20 years in newspapers being art directed by people who never bothered to learn anything about visual design because of how the hierarchies of newspapers were uh, writers went up the ladders. Writers became editors. They became managing editors. They became editors in chief. They made all of the decisions. Artists and photographers could become people in charge of the art department and the photo department. And that's about as far as they got. <laughs> All right? right. So when it came down to a decision of presenting a visual, uh, I was always being vetoed by people who had absolutely no idea 
about visual design, about art elements, about the craft that I had been pursuing for the past several decades. Okay. And so time and time again, as I was doing either a page design, an illustration, or an informational graphic, uh, people would tell me to do things that I really felt were bad decisions, but I had to do them because they had decision-making power. That's my Niagara Falls on this. That's why if you're going to tell me that you're making art uh, editing decisions and you don't know anything about art, I'm going to ask you very kindly to stay out of it. I don't think you should be making art editing decisions. If you don't know anything about art, you should leave that to the people who have been practicing their craft. If you know more about writing, you should make writing editing decisions and you should stay out of art editing decisions and let the people who live and breathe that craft make those decisions. I think, in my opinion, you're going to get better decision making that way. Oh, I I don't necessarily disagree with you. However, this is how the the question and interchange kind of appeared to me. This is uh, you'll you'll know when Brad Geiger comes into this to yeah. this answer. Okay. Yeah. Hey, Brad, uh, it's Bob Skivens uh, writing a real quick question. Uh, do you prefer Ford or Chevy cars? And then Brad goes, well, I'll tell you what, Bob, I hate motorcycles. And anybody who rides a motorcycle is a son of a bitch. And I don't know why you're asking me about motorcycles. Now, why did you get the sense that this question asker was asking about art directing someone else and not their own work was 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 my takeaway? Oh, that's a really good, you know what? I, I stand, I stand accused and rightly so. If you're talking about your own, well, but wait a minute, if you're an artist, huh? I got, I got to sit with that for a second because I, when I read that, I really did assume they were talking about being part of a, a collaboration, a part of a team, and they oh. didn't know how to edit that in the process uh, because, because if you're if you're an artist, I think editing is something that comes up that you learn how to do as you're learning your craft. Right. Uh, so but that doesn't mean, by the way, if, if you're right on this, that doesn't mean that Katie should feel bad about asking the question. It just means that we need to rephrase how we're thinking about that. Let's do this. Why don't we answer it both ways? Because both are helpful answers. I will yeah. echo yeah. Uh, with Brad's um, statement that if you are on a team, if you're if you are the writer and your yeah. your artist is making choices that maybe you don't agree with, um, it is it is dangerous waters to start swimming out to give them art direction if you yourself are not understanding the reasons why they might have made certain art uh, art direction choices, things yeah. like that. For example. Um, Beth, the colorist on Sheldon and Drive, I'm colorblind, Brad. And yeah. every once in a while, she will make a choice. And I I know that it's dangerous waters when I start commenting on someone who's a specialist <laughs> in color. Uh, and I, I, for the most part, I, yeah. I, if I'm going to dip a toe into the water of critique or noting, I'm like, now, Beth, am I right in saying that the color I'm seeing here is a yellow? Okay, great. Yes. So it's a yellow. So we're going to move on from that. But I guess what I'm saying is uh, I don't come in guns blazes like, I don't like this yellow because then she goes, Dave, that's a green. You're, yeah, that's, yeah, you're yeah. not even seeing the right yeah. color. Uh, and so it's a version of what you're saying here, which is don't come in guns blazing on a topic for which yeah. you don't know much. So right. I think you and I can agree there. But I think what I read this question, Brad, as saying, hey, I would like to improve my editorial eye for art making. 
for how I construct a panel, for how I construct a page. Yeah. How, how would you, Brad, tell an artist who is who is on the path of art making to right. get better at their editorial decisions around their art construction of their page and their panels? If that's the case, then I agree with you step after step. Everything you said, I agree with. And I'll just add this. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, first, I'll just add, uh, Katie, I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> <laughs> if, if, if that's the case, then I'm I'm really glad that I that I uh, gave you my preview before I I just jumped into it because it would have been horrible if I would have just said, "Hey, Katie, just stay out of it. You don't belong <laughs> in there." Uh, so I will I will say I'm going to add this to what Dave said, and that is, in all cases, you're looking for clarity, and and here's what I mean. Yes. So many times as comics artists, we as a, as an uh, uh, an attempt to kind of flex our muscles and show you know our drawing skills and stuff, we can make some really bad compositional uh, decisions. And and I guess for me, that's that might be where I took a fork in the road because a lot of the things that are coming to mind right now are composition uh, related, and I wouldn't consider them editing. But I see I see where we're getting the connection here, mm -hmm. and 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 I get it. Uh, make sure that clarity is your number one. And and by the way, you know the next thing that I'm going to say. Out of all of it, your word balloons are the most important part. So many times I see people trying to do these, uh, trying to do a, a, a really beautiful illustration and then shoehorn the word balloons in wherever they fit. And of course, that's a, a wonderful way to write uh, a comic that gets read in the wrong order, right? Yes. <laughs> so, yes. so I want you to really con uh, concentrate on, even though it might be a little bit boring, I want you to always concentrate on having the first word balloon in the upper left corner every time you know why because that's where your readers are looking for it yeah. right and that's what i mean by going for clarity sometimes sacrificing a little bit in the illustration uh in order to get those word balloons to happen in the right order because it's the reading experience that is the most important out of everything so then once you get that in the upper left hand corner make sure that you're composing those word balloons in a z pattern right you start at the upper left you go straight across and then if you have more you go diagonal down to the left and then across to the right it's a z pattern uh and there's a lot of people that want to float these word balloons just wherever they think it'll fit in the illustration and their comics get read in the wrong order. So my 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 keyword here, if you're looking to edit your art is clarity, make sure yeah. you're making that scene, you're composing that panel with ultimate clarity in mind. Well, and I will say one other thing, too, is that as you're editing through your art, one thing that you will find is that we, most of us, 99% of us start from a writing perspective. I mean, I know Stan Lee and, and Kirby figured out some weird ass technique where they would yeah. draw it and then Stan would fill in the word blue, which is yeah. weird. But most of us start from writing. And so yeah. um, what, what art editing allows you to do is you can isolate a lot of moments where the art can do the heavy lifting such that you can remove 10%, 20%, 30% of your text. You know what I mean? If you can yeah. impart the mood, the tone, the tenor through the art, 
far better than the words, then do that. That is a good choice. It is mm-hmm. better as a reductive art. It's better to let the art do the heavy lifting than the text. So um, I know that this was specifically an art question, but you can continue to edit even in the art making process of your thumb mailing. Thumb mailing? I guess that's when you <laughs> mail a thumb. Is that you're now working for the mob? Look, we're thumb mailing over here. What are you doing? Um, no, you're thumb mailing and your panel layout. You can, by virtue of going, oh, wait a minute, I can show this mood rather than saying I am sad. How yeah. much better to show the pathos in their face right. uh, than than to have uh, extraneous words. So um, any, anyway, uh, Katie, so a couple, couple of things uh, per Brad's notes. Um, don't don't you dare ride a motorcycle. Uh, Ford and Chevy are perfectly fine cars. Stay off of those motorcycles, Katie. They're no oh, good. Way, speaking of which, I should give you one fun bit of news because um, uh, you were mentioning that that the uh, the graphics folks never rise up the ranks of, yeah. of newspapers. One thing I should mention, only because he's an old college friend of mine, we were both cartoonists at Notre Dame, uh, and the New York Times made uh, Steve Duenas, who's one of their graphic graphic artists and and occasional illustrator cartoonist they made them deputy he, he's now deputy managing editor which is wow. one of the reasons i think why the new york times has such great graphics displays great uh the award-winning pulitzer winning maps and and graphs and stuff and a lot of that is steve's work and though even though i haven't talked to steve in god 15 years now i'm really proud of him that he got to deputy manager editor of, of the new york times all through the graphics not the writing side of things but the graphic yeah. side of things as a cartoonist that's exciting which is super significant yeah, yeah. so um anyway so as a cartoonist you can even work your way up the uh, traditional press ladders so <laughs> that's exciting and that's wonderful uh, but anyway katie i think we i think we were able to manage your question and work in an oblique uh, Brad rant there on the side. So I think you've got a twofer. You got a twofer on got that Got a one. twofer Tuesday. Well, That's listen, right. Dave, we've got another question and we're going to go from art into writing. Listen to this. This one comes in from Brandon Heyman who asks, hey guys, in a recent episode, Brad went into detail about his entire writing process. But After reading both Drive books, I find that my own writing style is more akin to Dave's and how he meanders for a bit as the story unfolds. So, Dave, (laughs) could you do a deep dive on your writing process and explain more of how and why it works for you and for the comic? (laughs) <laughs> I know. Uh, maybe that was an accidental word choice. I, the meandering made me laugh a little bit. Like, uh, Dave's writing, which is much like a 95-year-old grandparent who's been let out of the yard, and now the whole family has to go look on Thanksgiving for where they ended up. Yeah. Now, just to, re- just to recap, a lot of my advice uh, during that talk was you've got to move from story beat to story beat. You've got to plan your story. You've got to get to the point. There's got to be significant moments. And Dave, uh, evidently, what you do is 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 much akin to Billy or Jeffy on the family circus. Uh, you just have that dotted line that goes all over the yard as you're trying to find a point somewhere. Maybe someday you'll get to it. So, Dave, uh, explain to Brandon uh, this meandering that you're doing. I uh, um, I'm I'm like Billy following a helium balloon around the neighborhood as it bounces around. Um, uh, yeah. So, no, I guess. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Brandon, all joking aside, I, 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 I'm not insulted. And I know what you mean about meandering, because here's what I do. My strategy, and we've talked about this on the show before, but my strategy is I know where I'm going. I know where my goal is. I'm driving from Los Angeles to Philadelphia, right? 
And I know that I'm going to end up in Philadelphia. I know how I'm going to get there. I know what the mood is when I arrive, right? But I also know that on my way to Philadelphia, I'm going to stop at Denver. I'm going to stop in Kansas City. I'm going to stop in Chicago and then on to uh, Philadelphia. By yeah. the way, that road trip makes no sense. I don't know why you would go Denver, Kansas Anyway, um, so what I'm getting at is I know all those major stops along the way, but I don't know what diner I'm going to stop at on day four. Mm-hmm. I allow myself a little wiggle room for fun, happy discoveries along the way. Phrases that a character says, turns of, uh, of, of plot that could not change things, but enhance things along the way. So not everything is fully plotted out to answer your question, which I think it, it, being kind about it, I think that's what you're getting at in the sense that you can tell that um, not everything is plotted down to the every T being crossed and I being dotted. But I think that I personally think that that allows for a little bit of naturalism in like how life unfolds in roller coaster fashion. It's not always a constant climb up or a constant drop down. It's an up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, down. And also it makes it more fun for me along the way. So uh, is it meandering? I hope it's not too meandering, but uh, <laughs> but I somewhat take your meeting in that I don't. I don't have uh, like a fixed goal that I'm headed to and got to get there uh, super fast. Right. Well, now, with that being said, uh, I uh, do do you want to go into detail about your writing process? Because when I remember that show, I basically said, here's where the idea is. Here's how I get it to the next step. And then I go to an editing process. How much detail are you comfortable going into about your own writing process, starting from the, the germ of the idea all the way through? Sure. Well, I think one helpful way to talk about it is how I do an individual page. Mm-hmm. Um, so I will, when I sit down uh, in my writing chair with a little cup of coffee and my dog on my lap, and I will have an, a pad of paper. And for whatever reason, drive, I like the pad of paper because anything that I cross out, anything that I X through is still on that page. If I type it and I delete it, it is gone. And you might think, well, well, no, no problem with that. But 45 minutes on in my writing process, I might go, wait, wait, wait. I had a better version of this phrase pre- 45 minutes ago. What, what, what was it I said under this mm-hmm. scratch marks? And, you know, you can still read under your scratch marks and you go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a better phrase. I'm going to rework that back in. And so for me, something about the physical media of having it in pen and on paper where there's scratch outs, there's arrows, like bringing panel three up to panel one, moving panel, this section of panel one down to panel four. Uh, Something about the kineticism about that, about the the captured memory, even though it's crossed out, uh, is helpful. So that's how I do that. But then what I do with each page of drive is, I say to myself, even though it's not it's not like a spoken thing at this point, it's just intuitive. I say, I know I need to get out two bits of information on this page. Mm -hmm. They've been given a command to go to this planet. Right. That's that that has to get out on this page. And before they do that, they have to charge the weapons. Right. That's the those are the two uh, exponential in, in storytelling terms, in terms of laying the pipe, that's the, that's the exponential, uh, not the exponential, that's the expositional mm-hmm. stuff that has to get out. Um, but around that, what I try to do is to, to disguise the fact that you've just learned two new things that are critical to the story. Yeah. And so I, 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 I let it sit amongst other day-to-day conversation among jokes, 
among other uh, character building moments so that you don't consciously go, I see what Dave is doing. He is right. telling us we need to go to the plant. Like it's not roboticized. You know what I mean? Right. Because I want it to feel organic that this came up in conversation and now they have to go do this thing. So. Right. There's that. And then to Brad's often repeated point, I really try to end every page of Drive on some satisfying ending because Drive yeah. updates on a one page per week basis. Mm -hmm. So it's either uh, uh, most often it's a joke, right? It's a it's some kind of build and then a, a popping of the balloon joke kind of a feeling. Right. Or it's, it's, it's a really critical character moment, a big character yeah. reaction, a big mood, whatever that mood might be, sadness, excitement, anger, whatever that mood could be. Or it's something big visually, an explosion, uh, someone breaks out of a jail, whatever it is that that basically it's a satisfying ending. So you get to the end of the page and you go, well, that wasn't worth it. You go, oh, right. that was worth it. That was a satisfying read, Brad. What do, yeah. How about you? How do you tackle a page? Now, I know you come at it more structured. You're less like a, a four-year-old like I am <laughs> meandering through a forest trying to recapture where their parents set up camp. Uh, that's that's apparently me on my writing style. But now talk to, talk to me about your writing style, Brad, about how oh, you well, do it. Uh, I, I'm going to underline everything that you said because uh, I, I, I everything that you said dovetails very, very closely with what I do. I, I'm just going to add one thing, and that is making sure that I'm thinking about my individual uh, pages as they're going to appear in social media because mm -hmm. I'm using social media and my website as audience building reader retention tools. And so I'm going to make sure that there's a place uh, in every one of those social media posts that has an entry point for somebody that's just coming to this for the first time. Oh, yeah. So that they yeah, can, good point. So they can kind of jump in. I'm not, I'm not, uh, uh, you know, throwing somebody in cold. Uh, and, and that, that means you've got to write, uh, this stuff with that in mind in the first swing, you, you've got to write these pages with the thought of, okay, how's this going to look on social media? Uh, how's this going to look on my website for that, for that person that's coming to the website for the first time? Uh, it, you can't do it every time. You can't no. do it every and, time. And, and Brad, the, before you go on, the, the most hacky version of that, just to yeah. just to clarify what Brad does versus right. the most hacky version of that. The most hacky version of that is actually the Spider-Man comic strip, if you've ever yes. seen it, yeah. which is notorious for the first panel is a bad recap of whatever has been going on. Yeah. The middle panel moves the exposition one eighth of an inch forward. And then the third panel is like, I don't know, guess you'll go, we'll see more tomorrow. And, yeah. and then the, the next day is the exact same pattern. Yeah. That's the hack. But what Brad is saying is one one hundredth of that, where you give yes. just enough of a mood, a sense, uh, a resonance. Like we're not catching you up, but you kind of are not being thrown in cold. Right, Brad? Isn't that a good way to describe oh, yeah. that? Well, yeah. In other words, I, I it, it, what you just described, like you said, one one hundredth. In other words, uh, that Spider-Man pattern where where the first panel is a recap. Well, okay, recap. Take that out and re replace it with entry point, right? Because yeah. recap is a great, again, this was a factory style of doing storytelling with those, with that comic strip, right? They had to have certain rules that whoever they throw into that, they could follow those rules. Recap right. story uh, foreshadowing. Boom, boom, boom. Follow these rules. Well, okay. Take recap out. Put in entry point. Now, instead of having a three panel comic, that's one of the reasons that I rethought my comic uh, away from a comic strip and towards a graphic novel and rethought my pages as basically a top half and a bottom half. Each of those are a separate social media post. Right. I gave myself more panels. 
in other words, okay? Right. Which you could do, you could do the same thing with something that is published like Drive, where you're publishing uh, a page and it's closer to six panels. You, you could do the same thing, but give yourself an entry point. Now do the storytelling. This is the fun part. And then that last panel, something has to happen. You've got to make that reading experience uh, significant for everybody, the longtime readers and the people that came for the first time, okay? And that's, like I, like I said, it's hard to do. It can be done. It's hard to do. And sometimes, every now and again, I'll put out uh, a social media post where I just know, you know what? This was important to do for the book. It's not going to do great on social media. I'm not going right, to gain right. readers today. Today is not going to be a reader gaining day. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, but it's necessary for the book. And so you sit there and you make a decision of balance. What, where's my balance? You say, okay, it needs to be done. And boom, you hit the button and out it goes. Knowing full well that if you keep making that same decision over and over and over again, it's going to have a cumulative effect on your audience building reader retention uh, process, right? Uh, so right. you, I, I tell myself, okay, you can do this every now and again, Brad. You can't do it all the time. <laughs> you got to get back to making something happen on that post or else you're not going to build readers. So it's a question of balance. Well, and speaking of balance, I should mention too that uh, 99% of my pages, and I'm sure this is true with Brad, yeah. I have the one or two bits of exposition that I know I need to get out, but they're satisfying and they make sense within the context of the story as it's unfolding. Yeah. But on every, say, hundredth page, I have some bit of foreshadowing yeah. or some bit of exposition that comes out of left field that is frankly going to confuse people. But to Brad's point about the book, you have to put those markers down mm -hmm. so that there's a benefit a hundred pages from now. And so even though on those days you a little bit lose slash confuse people yeah. because they're like, wait, what is this? What is it? Who are we foreshadowing here or what's going on or what's this new bit of exposition? Yes, you'll lose people on that day or yes, you'll confuse people or yes, that's not a growing day for you in terms of people yeah. sharing it with friends. But those days are very important for the overall arcing of the story. And so you have mm -hmm. to allow for those days, one out of 100 pages or so, to yeah. just lay down the markers of either foreshadowing or a new plot twist or a character development that no one saw coming. Those are important, too. And so even though, unlike Brad's tight writing style, even though I'm more like a baby duck that's been separated from the mommy <laughs> mallard and I'm wandering the pond, quacking, looking for her, I think uh, uh, a meandering style, I don't know, Brad, I'm just by joking, by the way. I'm not that offended by it. Even though a more meandering style uh, is, is not as tight, it can be very satisfying if you will follow still certain rules of, of satisfying ending of, of getting out exposition a little bit on every page, either a character development or an expositional build, um, and then making sure you hit those major landmarks of, of Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago on your way to Philadelphia, um, then you can absolutely build a satisfying story while still allowing for some wiggle room on the way there. As long as you get to Philadelphia, that's all I care about. Just end up in Philadelphia. I would like to rescind that city and change it to New York. <laughs> Hey, if you're listening while you work, take a minute to stand and stretch. And while you're doing that, we're going to tell you why you should join us on Patreon. When you do, you're going to get hours and hours of podcasts that we've recorded just for backers. And exclusive Patreon posts that go even deeper on Comic Lab topics. And access to our exclusive Discord server, which is a thriving community of professional cartoonists. So you can support the show you love and get tons of actionable resources for your own cartooning. 
And listen, if you can't swing a pledge this month, we get it. No worries. Yeah, yeah, listen, you can still support the show by rating us wherever you get your podcasts. Just leave a five-star review and a few kind words. That, along with mentions on social media, is incredibly helpful. Now, everybody, let's talk comics. Well, Brad, before we jump into part two of the show, I think everybody is still on pins and needles about Crow Watch 2021. How are the crows doing? How are your <laughs> friendships going with the crows? What's going on with the crows? What shiny objects have you been offering? Uh, How are things with the crows? It's been it's been a really tough November, I've got to tell you. I, I, the crows <laughs> are still not coming. And a lot of my little aluminum figures have gotten blown off the deck. So I've had to go into neighbors' uh, alleys and and pick uh, little tinfoil squirrels up uh, and, and <sighs> get them back. Uh, it's been it's it's been it's 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 been a little bit difficult right now. I, I'm at a low place uh, right now in my crow <laughs> friendship. I got to be honest with you. Oh, Brad, you want to be soaring with the eagles and quite literally soaring with the crows and you're at a low place. Oh, yeah. So, well, hold on. Uh, I just want to make absolutely clear what's happening here. Right. <laughs> yeah. You a grown sentient human being. Yes. Trying to make friends with a less intelligent avian oh, bird. crows are very intelligent. They're very intelligent. They're not as, I would hope, Brad, that they're not as smart as you. I'm just trying to clarify <laughs> what's happening here. If you're trying to argue that your crow friends are as smart as you, we're going to pause the show for a minute, and you and I are going to start a separate phone call real quick. Uh, all right, so you, a, a, a sentient, intelligent adult human, yes. are trying to make friends with a small two pound black bird right that you yeah. are that occasionally lands on your porch and brings and you things and, and i think it's safe to say it's not going well is no, what i'm hearing no well don't rub it in i mean the, the it's not we're not over yet but we're at we're at a low point right now that's all i'm willing to say we're at a low I, point. I just i just want to say are there any comparisons between this moment in your life right now <laughs> and your high school career anything any comparisons that you would like to make between right now and and high school <laughs> well in, in that the object of my desire uh is is very standoffish and and is very likely to to, to poop on me and is flying away from you at a moment's <laughs> notice <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a few uncomfortable <laughs> parallels there <laughs> well i i for one wish you all the best as crow watch 2021 continues um we're I, not I over think... yet you know it's it's not done yet and the good news is the weather is still nice enough for me to take my wacom one out onto that deck and that's a nice shiny surface too and i'm hoping that Wacom One is going to help me turn the corner. Absolutely. And a well-turned phrase, my friend, that reminds me we need to give a huge shout out and a thank you to our friends at Wacom for sponsoring today's show. Wacom at WACOM.com, makers of the Wacom One, which both Brad and I own and use and love in our studios. I use it for Drive on the Daily. Brad uses it for Evil Ink on the Daily and also yes. for drawing special pictures for his crow friends. <laughs> That's uh, right. I do. Small, small portraitures that he holds up and Mr. Pickles sometimes responds, <laughs> I think. Brad sometimes is not depending on how the crow is feeling depending on how the crow flies it's been going it's been going do we very, know, very poorly. The crow flies. do we know if crows can distinguish two-dimensional objects uh, I, uh, have I, we, have we I actually that out don't yet? know I know they're very smart uh, 
<laughs> oh God. Oh my God. You're really going to die on this hill about like, now listen, I'm not great at taxes, but I'm really trying to get the crows to help me out here. They're very smart. They're very smart creatures. But anyway, we give a huge shout out and a thank you to our friends, Wacom at WACOM.com, makers of the Wacom One and Bradley J. Lump. Let me jump us into our next question coming in from Mike Benowitz over at Patreon.com. Yeah. Comic Lab and Mike writes, hey there, you often talk about ways to make social media posts engaging by asking a question or such. I've been struggling for ways to ask an engaging question for my long form plot driven comic when we post single pages. Do you have any ideas how to approach this? It's more complicated than a how does this happen to you type shtick. Right. Um, and thanks. I really love the show. I wrote my first original script in 20 years after wow. listening to Writer's Room. Uh, a few times. I've only done adaptations in the meantime, but now I have an original short story that I can't wait to draw. Thank you. Mike, that's nice. awesome. I'm so glad. And by the way, Writer's Room goes out exclusively to our Patreon members over at patreon.com slash comic lab. So if you want to listen to those, they are delightful and uh, well worth a listen. And Brad, Mike's question, how do you uh, uh, make social media posts engaging without having to ask a question necessarily? Right, right. Well, listen, this is a this is a tough one, and and I always point people back to that uh, show that we had with Kevin McShane, where he talked about share thoughts, right? Those those ideas, like when you make a, a social media post, you're thinking in your mind, why would somebody share this? And you're mm -hmm. trying to kind of engineer it to put that share thought into your post. And one of the many things that he talked about was to ask a question. Right. To say, hey, does this and this is what Mike is saying, does this happen to you in, a, in an attempt to generate some of that engagement and feedback? But that was one of, of many things that Kevin talked about. Right. There was there was a lot of other things like you might share something because it has uh, an emotion that you're really having a hard time uh, sharing with other yes. people or yes. communicating or communicates a thought that you think is important. Go back and listen to that show. It was quite a quite a while ago. You'll find it in the early episodes of Comic Lab. Uh, but that has uh, that that has a lot of really good advice for this. But I want to go one more further, uh, especially because it dovetails so nicely with what we just got done talking about. If you're just writing a, a graphic novel and putting pages up on social media and expecting those pages to get uh, social media engagement. And by the way, this also goes for your website, too. In other words, I don't want you to kind of uh, hand wave this because you've heard me say late stage social media and you think it's going to be over in three weeks and, and you don't have to worry about this. This is still very important and it's important for web publishing in general. But if you're doing a page and you're just thinking about this as a graphic novel and you're putting those individual pages up on social media, expecting to, those to get engagement once you put a couple fancy words on there, you're going to have an uphill climb. Yes. What you really need to be doing as you're writing those pages is to be considering those pages at as how they are going to play out in the inevitable social media post. And that goes back to what we just got done talking about, having uh, an entry point, having a significant thing happen. I'll give you an example. If you've got something, let's say on page three, where the first word balloon is, that seems to be the case, right? Well, what just happened there? I don't know. I, that's a that's not a good entry. I don't know what's going on. If I go back and read page two, the last thing that was said on page two is, well, it seems that John is the murderer, right? That's a that's a pretty good way to end page two. But that seems to be the case. 
I don't I don't know where that's coming from. Right. right? The jumping in point is not so clear. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're continuing thoughts from page to page that I have to read the previous page to understand, that's not going to work so well on social media. So part of the job is not just uh, come uh, uh, learning how to apply Kevin McShane's share thoughts in in a post. Part of the job starts on day one when you're writing this thing and breaking those pages up, finding those moments so that you can engineer that social media uh, friendly post as you're writing that page. You just don't have the luxury of just doing a graphic novel and posting it page by page. Those that that's not the world you're living in, especially if you're trying to build a readership and uh, get your audience up there. You've got to be you've got to be building this in as you're in the writing process. Yeah, I think, uh, by, by the way, Brad, you're, you're right on the mark with this one in terms yeah. of uh, uh, having it be um, from the from the moment of writing the comic itself, not from the social media post. Um, really, I, I honestly think this goes back as far as to, uh, you know, um, step number one in our 20 comic commandment, which is mm -hmm. make a good comic. Yeah, because long form is one of those things where even though I personally feel like you get less new people coming in, I do feel like you have a better chance of permanently hooking them, not mm -hmm. just casually hooking them, if it is a good comic. And so one of the ways that you make your social media work for you with long form is that the comic is so good that their friends are tagging other friends in social media yeah. saying, hey, yeah. here's a good example of that story I was telling you about. Um, you will like this. And it, there's, there's enough of them in, in that particular page that they wanna share it with their friends. Um, but it's also built upon a foundation of being a good story, which is uh, uh, um, really critical. And honestly, um, to Kevin McShane's point about people share a thing that in some way echoes who they are. It's a, it's yeah. almost a statement about their personality, right? So it's kind of like a t-shirt that, I don't know, name whatever t-shirt slogan you would want to have. I love New York. I love New York, right? Something, if someone in Kansas wears an I love New York shirt, they're yeah. making a statement about the the aspirations, the desires, where they truly want to be in the world, yeah. that they see their vistas as being broader than just Kansas. They want to get to New York, that kind of thing, right? Yeah. So they're yeah. making a statement about themselves with the shirt. And if, if, whenever you post on social media, you'll see this kind of comment a lot. Jokingly, you'll see people say like, I see myself in this comic and I yes. don't like it. Like, yes. or who set up the camera in my house? Or right. they'll say things like, um, uh, where are you my know crow what? friends? Uh, right. Or it me, you know, that kind of, <laughs> yeah. some version of basically, I see myself in this comic. Yes. Yeah. And so that happens even with long form. And when you get those moments and it's built on a foundation of good story, you'll see people sharing it because it relates permanently to who their self identity is. And so they will share it because they'll be like, this is a worldview that I share. This is a worldview that reflects me. I'm mm -hmm. going to put it out into social media. Absolutely. And remember, you do have the wherewithal in many cases, not in all cases, but in many cases, you have the wherewithal that if you have one of those pages, that's kind of a, a page that, you know, isn't going to perform well on social media to pay to make your social media post two pages at a time. Right. So you can yep. build a larger moment to really hit something significant. You're not locked in again. And I've been saying this uh, almost since the beginning of the show. If you're publishing web comics the way we did in 2005, you're missing a lot. And that's the way we did long form in 2005. You did a page, you posted a page. You did page two, you posted page two, right? Mm -hmm. You have to use some strategy uh, in doing this now. You, you don't have... 
Uh, and, and by the way, between you and me, I don't think that was ever a very good way of publishing a long form on the web. Uh, but if you uh, are, are in that situation, you have to remember, hey, maybe this is the week I post two pages instead of one page. Yeah. And uh, I will say, uh, Brad's a thousand percent right. There are more than a few occasions where I will do uh, a two up or a three up on social yeah. media, three up pages, because for a, a billion reasons, that single standalone page, even though it will work in the book, it doesn't really work on social media or yeah. it doesn't really work as an update. So I will basically go to town that week and produce two to three pages instead of producing one page because it's not worth updating people with just one page that week. So right. Brad is definitely on the mark on on that one. And so uh, good luck with that one, Mike. I think I think you're on the right path in asking that question. Well, here's a question, Dave, as we wrap that up, that is a little bit more sobering. <laughs> and it's something that many of us in self-publishing are experiencing. The question comes from Mindy Indy, and it says, with printers backed up, my comic won't be printed until at least January. While there's nothing that can be done to speed it up, how can I and others make the best of a January or February release when everyone is tapped out from the holidays? Early year releases are tough. So, Dave, uh, there's a few of us that are going to be in the situation of having a uh, having a book that we planned for late 2021 coming out in early 2022 in those sleepy months of January and February and even March. Uh what do you what do you do about this? How do you how do you fight that malaise? Well, if you're Dave Kellett, you have a lot of sleepless nights. That's what you do. Brad. <laughs> uh, uh, so uh, uh, for everyone that remembers, I kickstarted uh, a drive book, the third drive book a few yeah. months back, um, hoping that it would be available at the end of 2021. However, yeah. I set my delivery date at March 2022 because I knew even six months ago, I could see the, the signs that the paper supplies, the, the, the long boats off of, off of the western coast of the United States, mm -hmm. uh, the trucking problems that Britain was having. I was like, I can just see where, the, where this is headed. Yeah. And even though the pandemic might be winding down, knock on wood, knock on wood, um, that there are still supply side and, and logistics problems across the world right now because of death and because of illness and because of, of weird buying patterns. So um, this is affecting all of us. In fact, it's even affecting Image Comics, who this yeah. week, Brad, um, announced that they are not going to be doing second printings of their books anymore, at least yeah. for the foreseeable future, yeah. um, because the economics and the logistics just don't work out right now. So, um, and it's also a problem in Europe right now, which has literally run out of paper to print <laughs> books yeah. uh, for the, I think there's four major printers in, in Europe now still. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a, a tweet that went massively viral the other day because they literally ran out of paper in Europe until the beginning of the new year. Yeah. Uh, there's two printers in the U.S. of size, both of which are having problems getting paper from Canada right now. Uh, which is still the big supplier for the U.S. of paper. And um, and then for those of uh, printing in China and India, all sorts of logistics problems and getting those boats uh, over here and getting them successfully yeah. unloaded. So there's problems yeah. all over. So this is a universal uh, question. And um, here is the good news. I hope that you are not just printing these books without having kickstarted them first. Because yeah. when you kickstart, you lock in that customer way earlier. Mm -hmm. They're also helping to plan help you plan how many to print, and they're underwriting the cost of the printing. 
So yeah. you've locked in the customers, you've got a better idea of how many to print, and you've got the money to make the book. So hopefully you've done that. Um, if you haven't, it's still not ruinous to have a book in the new year, even though it's not ideal. And here's why. You've been building your customer base for a year, two years, three years, five years, hopefully such to the point that they are excited about this book coming out no matter when it comes out. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you are trying to go find a customer in January, February. You're just trying to get an existing customer to say, yes, I'm excited for this book. Yeah. I'm ready to buy in. Yep. And that's really is the, the strength of the publishing methods that Dave and I uh, talk about on this show week after week. And that is, this is why you're doing all that stuff. Everything that we just got done talking about, the, the yeah. importance of social media, planning for social media, every darn topic that we've had, all uh, going back to art and writing, leads you to this point. And now you hopefully have uh, a, a dedicated audience. You've got a, a readership mm -hmm. that you've built up and uh, it, it doesn't matter to them that it's January, because remember, you, uh, uh, a part of this, you've got to break yourself out of that uh, mindset of the publishing industry that hopefully you're not part of, right? And, and I, when I say hopefully, if you're working with a publisher for this, well, then this is partially the publisher's uh, nut to crack. Right. This is this is why they get their take of the of the book right. sale. Let, let them figure it out. Basically, is what <laughs> yeah, you're saying. And yeah. this is this is their job to do. Yeah. Uh, but if you're somebody that's self-publishing like Dave and I, uh, sometimes it's easy to think uh, along those terms that you said. Well, geez, January and February, those are slow months. They are for retailers. They absolutely are. But if you're doing self-publishing the way we're talking about it, uh, you're not relying on somebody standing there at Barnes and Nobles, for example, making a point of sale decision. You're not deciding, you're yes. not, this is not an impulse buy. This is somebody that's been following you for a long time. And okay, it's January. I don't care. It's January. And Mindy has a book. I love Mindy. I want that book. Right. January doesn't enter into that equation. You're not relying on point, point of sale uh, uh, decision-making. You, this is where all the work that you've been doing up until now on social media, all those dumb tweets, all that thought that you put into this, all of the stuff that you've done, uh, all of that uh, uh, community building that that hopefully you've been doing up until that, this point, this is where it all pays off right. in that when you say now that you've got a book, nobody looks at their calendar. They are excited for you and your new book. Right. This is when the rubber hits the road as far as yeah. having used the four C's of social media for the yep. past two, three, four years, uh, because you have built up an audience such that they pay attention to your announcements. They pay attention to you. They want to know uh, when the book is coming and they're excited for it. And also remember, there is also a long game aspect to this that even printers and publishers don't have that you have as independent creator. And I'll tell you what I mean. Uh, in back in the day in like grad school, I worked at a, a, a bookstore and it was amazing to me the amount and the volume of books that would get pulped because once they had reached a certain sort of expiration date, Brad, we would get a notice from the publisher saying, return the cover. And you literally tore the cover off the book yes, and, yes. and throw the rest of the book away because they knew that if it hadn't sold by X number of months after it's launched, that only a percentage would continue to sell. And so pulp the rest, send us back the cover so you can get reimbursed. 
And, mm-hmm. and then that was that, right? They had a, a, a model, but here's the thing. You, I, Mindy, in these cases, we don't have that same model. We can play the long game yes. where I can continue to sell a book that I have. And granted, I only have about 30 of them left in my archive that I printed 14 years ago. I'm still right. selling that one, Brad. Yeah. And it's still bringing me value even after the cost of goods sold is long since recouped on that decades ago, right? Mm-hmm. And so- that's part of my business model is that, yes, of course, I want to push those sales in those first months when <laughs> yeah. the book launches, because I, if I didn't kickstart, I sure as heck want to recoup my costs as quickly as possible. Right. right. But, but even if that's not the case, it's still the long game in a way that we have that publishers and printers don't have uh, image won't hold on to certain books as long as we will hold on to them. DC and Marvel won't hold on to them as long as we will hold on to them. Yeah. So we have a certain home field advantage in terms of being the owners and operators of our own online stores that other people do not have. Absolutely. Uh, Dave, if you'd like, we've got time for one more question as we're nearing the end of the show. And it's one that you are in a unique place to answer. This one comes in from our friend Nathan, who says this one's for Dave. He's mentioned a few times on the show that he studied historical comics in the United Kingdom. I was wondering if he had any Victorian or platinum age comics that he found particularly interesting or entertaining or would otherwise recommend aspiring comics historians uh, check out follow up any resources he thinks comics historians interested in this area should check out so uh well let's talk about your study over there in the uk uh other than learning uh, how to use that train system efficiently uh what can you tell us about where we should be looking for for the bright spots in comics history there Oh, my God. You saying the train system just reminded me of. uh, Can I tell you a brief train story about the UK? Please. I don't know if the if the if the English still have this, but there was a train that went from London down to Canterbury, where I lived. And a friend of mine from L.A. flew out to London to come visit and stay with me. And uh, she her train pulls up into Canterbury. But here was the weird thing about this train. And I do not know why the English designed it this way. You had to roll down the window at the door, reach out outside, turn the knob and open the door. Right. Oh, that my was, goodness. It was a train, I think, from the late 60s, to 70s. But it was still on the tracks when I was in England. I'm sure it's gone by now. But mm-hmm. anyway. Um, everybody, everybody in England, because you grew up with it, you knew how this train door worked, but every American or Canadian that got on this train was like, yeah. So my friend who was not shy and she had a very American accent, she, um, the, the window is open at the, at train station. She, her train pulls up at Canterbury and there's, you know, you have what on average, two minutes, three minutes to get off a train, you know? And so she had a couple minutes, but she couldn't figure out how to get the door open. Oh, so no. she leans out the door and screams in the loudest American accent. And if you know the English, they're not really big on like making a show of yourself. She's right. screaming, someone help me. I don't know how to get the door open. Oh God, oh God, someone help me. And I was like, oh my God. I swear I'm running across the station like, shut up, shut up, shut up. All over the door, shut up, shut up, shut up. Stop being an American, stop being an American. Stop but to be fair, American. it was the most ridiculous door. I, I yeah. don't remember the name of the manufacturer, but anyway, it was Okay, so anyway, so um, Nathan, <laughs> to your question. I remember the name of the manufacturer. <laughs> That's the most Dave Kellett thing you've said all day. <laughs> <laughs> so as far as um, uh, Victorian or uh, let's broaden that out for the 40, 50 years around Victorian age cartooning. Mm-hmm. Um, here is the truth. For whatever reason, subjectively, I find that period to be 
kind of uninteresting. Yeah. And I'll tell you why. It's sort I mean, you look at the first burst of comics in English and you've got Hogarth and you've got Gilray and it's around 1746 to around 1780. There's this real explosion of them figuring shit out like they're yeah. figuring out how a word balloon works. And remember, Brad, they had it touch the lip of the person. Mm -hmm. so the, the word balloon that. would come down on a super long, almost spaghetti like tail. Yes. And it would kind of awkwardly touch their lip. And, and the words would flow as though they were kind of drunk. They hadn't figured out yet that strongly horizontal lines were the best way to present that right they were still figuring it out and yet because they were all classically trained artists and the etchings were amazing all mm -hmm. the etch work was beautiful they were they were hand colored and sold as folios and so it was really interesting right and then comics in my mind kind of meandered for the next 100 150 years because people were still kind of figuring it out and yeah Really, until print got to a certain point of affordability, you didn't have an explosion. And yes, punch existed. Mm -hmm. And yes, in America, you had other uh, uh, publications. Um, but I think aside from certain bursts of of interesting cartoonists like Thomas Nast or yeah. or in Britain, you'd have I'm kind of trying to think, but um it it wasn't really the high point. It's like saying, hey, Brad, tell me about the best moments of your early dating career. You're like, nah, no, it wasn't great. I was still figuring out how to date. I was still figuring out how to be me, you know? You had moments? I didn't even have moments. <laughs> I, <laughs> I guess was jealous saying, of anybody that had moments. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of saying this as a, as a cartoon historian. I yeah. personally feel like there's about mm -hmm. a 50 to 80 year window there where it's kind of like the teen years of cartooning. Yeah. Like, yes, you would get interested sparks of like oh someone had an innovation here or someone figured it out here um and uh but i i honestly uh one of the and david malky said this in stripped and i think it was to great effect mm -hmm. when photography came along it almost immediately within a 10-year period wiped out an entire class of illustrators yeah and so you had a lot of people transitioning to comics and at that point um, uh, you had really some interesting experimentation done because they were basically much like Picasso was trying to separate painting from what film could do and what photography could do. You had cartoonists trying to separate what cartooning could do to separate it from photography. Like, look what we can do that photography can't do. Right. And mm -hmm. that was caricature. That was that was um, um, uh, long form storylines that photographs couldn't do. And so you had things like comics that, so when, for me, when the comic strip started to come along in Germany and in, and in the US and in and a little bit lesser extent in Britain, you had really interesting experimentation. And so you had stuff like uh, Cats and Jammer Kids and, and all that sort of stuff. And that's, I think, when, when things really pick up and, and start to spark. So for me, Victorian age is kind of boring teen years um, yes, there's a little bit of experimentation and some fun stuff, but it's not sexy or exciting to me. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting because I was wondering the same thing. Uh, I, it's funny you mentioned the word balloons that touch the lip of the person. If you've ever seen uh, a friend of mine from the Ohio area, John Backderf, who just goes by Durf, who is a wonderful uh, alt editorial cartoonist, uh, does really good stuff. Uh, since the Cleveland accent is so nasally, 
his word balloon tails go right up the nostril of the speaker. It curves ah. around and then goes right up the nose. <laughs> if you see a, a word balloon tail going up somebody's nose, uh, you, you're probably looking at Durf. Uh, at Durf. Who's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a, a marvelous cartoonist and a, and a really good guy. But you know what? Also, I, I should say that um, when when comics, I think, start to really click in 1910, 2030, yeah. what's interesting is that you also have sort of a, a metropolitan um coagulation of cartoonists that literally live near each other yeah. so you would have new york you would have london and uh you would have to some extent toronto chicago where like areas where cartoonists were actually sitting next to each other teaching one another because obviously there mm -hmm. weren't schools for this but teaching each other and they would see one another's work in newsprint and go oh shit that's a better way to do it than the way i was doing it oh this is a better way to do paneling oh this is a better way to do word balloons and it was it was interesting to see them learning from each other uh, and so for me, that kind of uh, uh, interwar period of between 1910, 1940, that to me is when cartoonists just had the sort of uh, um, uh, explosion of life and interest uh, that they didn't have in Victorian times. Go ahead, Brad. What were you going to say? That same thing happened in Connecticut. I believe it was Connecticut for syndicated cartoonists. Have you ever oh, read yeah? about that? Where uh -huh. a bunch of these folks were living uh, within a few blocks of each other uh, in Connecticut, and they would all do much the same thing is, is kind of do information sharing and, and uh, cheering each other on and, of course, playing golf together. Yeah. <laughs> having, having whiskey <laughs> sours at 10 a.m. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's... But uh, honestly, though, it is it is fun to read through, Nathan, if for no other mm -hmm. reason than just to see to see cartoonists trying to figure it out. Yeah. Um, and I will say one other thing I've mentioned this before on the show. I don't know why I do not know why, but 80 percent of the jokes from England in the Victorian period of cartooning somehow seem to involve coal. I don't know why oh, that is. Really? Every third joke is a coal joke. I guess because you had a lot of coal around the house to keep warm. Yeah. Babies were always trying to eat coal, which is always a weird thing to me that we don't talk about anymore because it's like minerals. You know how kids always put things in their mouth? Yeah. Apparently babies were always trying to eat coal. So there's a bajillion Victorian comics about babies trying to eat coal. It's weird. It's always about stoking the fire or all the boilers not working. <laughs> Those All the Victorian comics are kind of like, what, are we all talking about pantaloons what the hell is this is this humor it just doesn't work anymore none of it works anymore so uh that's another thing is that the humor is is just distant enough where it's it's real stale real stale oh, yeah it just doesn't I'll hold bet. up you know well listen speaking of things getting stale well that's not a good transition <laughs> how about this <laughs> we've come to the end of another hour of comics advice here on comic lab the show about making comics and making a living from comics your hosts have been my coal-loving friend, Brad Geiger, the editor of webcomics.com and the creator of Evil Inc. at evil-comic.com. And my good friend, the coal porter of comics, Dave Kellett, co-director of the comics documentary strip and cartoonist of Sheldon at sheldoncomics.com and drive at drivecomic.com. And the Comic Lab theme song is used with permission from Andy Creighton at theworldrecord.net. And this episode was edited by Matt Woodard of Woodsong Productions over at www.woodsong.media. 
If you love Comic Lab, you can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, and you may hear your review featured on a future episode. And of course, our two sponsors for today's show, The Great Comic Craft, which is having their sale on January 1st. Put it on your calendar. Their font sale uh, on January 1st. Do not miss it. And you're going to want to go to comicbookfonts.com for that. That's comicbookfonts. And the way you can remember that is that they sell comic book fonts. See how that works, Brad? <laughs> See how that... That's good branding right there. And of course, you're going to want to head over to Wacom at W-A-C-O-M.com, the makers of the Wacom One, the good folks there at Wacom. Thank you so much for sponsoring the show. And Bradley J., let me say this, Comic Lab is made possible by your support on Patreon.com slash Comic Lab. So we'll say that twice. Patreon.com slash Comic Lab. Hey, Marigold, did you see Prime Minister Disraeli today on the wire? Oh, well, yes, I did. Tell me all about it. I say, he seemed like a baby chewing a piece of coal. <laughs> yes, we've landed another joke here in our Victorian comic. <laughs> we'll see you next week on the pages of Punch. I thought he was still assembling his cabinet. <laughs> <laughs>